Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I am delighted to be joined today by Tish Hamilton. Hello, Tish. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be here. Yeah, it has been a while. It has been a while. So, and I also haven't been in the studio in a while. We have been on the road. We did a podcast recording at Goo Headquarters and then, oh, did a crossover episode last week with Bib Rave, and I was at their studio, so sort of almost forgot what it was like to be in this room as a studio. So anyway, so uh, got it all figured out. Uh, is it spring break where you are, Tish? Uh, spring break comes up next week for us, oh, but okay. because we've had a bunch of snow and ice here, uh, my daughter's spring break has been shortened um, oh. to only uh, three days. I don't know how they pull that off, because that happens to Amanda Loudon, who's in Maryland, uh, one of the other co-hosts. And I just, I mean, it's not like people book their trips to like Hawaii or Florida, you know, two weeks beforehand, you know, I mean, tickets have been bought, hotels have been, per- you know, booked. I mean, what's the deal? Yeah, I think uh, I think that there won't be that many kids in school, um, but my kid will be there for sure. Right, right. <laughs> well, my kids would be there too. We went to the coast, for, to the Oregon coast for the weekend, uh, which was fun. We took our dog, Augie, and uh, he it was his first time on the beach. It was his first time off leash. So he had a, because it's an really off fun. leash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, so, and he's very friendly and it's a quite a busy beach, even in uh, late March. And so he was just saying hello to everyone. Uh, but uh, yeah, we are, I am at my desk every day and the kids are, you know, doing their thing, going to the mall and hanging out with friends and things like that. So, um, so yes, but I saw on our website that you had an amazing, amazing spring break last year. Tell us about that. Yeah, last year I set the personal record for best spring breaks ever. <laughs> a, a, a vacation PR. <laughs> a vacation PR, spring break PR. So I went to South Africa uh, wow. to do a race that actually was on my friend Jody's bucket list. Uh-huh. And the race is called Two Oceans Marathon. Uh-huh. Uh, and the South Africans uh, are crazy, and they call things that are longer than a marathon a marathon. So this race right. was actually 56 kilometers, which oh, is boy. about 34, 35 miles. Uh-huh. Um, and it also had a cutoff of seven hours, which uh-huh. works out to um, a 1230 pace. Okay. Mm. You know, which sounds doable, except for we are talking about, you know, 34, 35 miles. Uh, right. And, uh, right. We, we both got a little panicky towards the end of our training about whether or not we were going to hit the goal. Um, and we did make the cutoff. Uh, nice. Um, I, I did it in six hours and 37 minutes, and my friend did it in six hours and 42 minutes. But I got to tell you, the South Africans are really strict. If you don't make that cutoff, you can run every step, but it still doesn't count oh, as a finish. Oh, my. Would yeah. they let you cross the finish line like they do at Ironman, but they just when you know... You don't count. It doesn't count. It was the end of the spring break week. And I found that uh, Kruger National Park, which is the one of the largest um, wildlife refuges in Africa, has hiking safaris. Oh. And so for three days, you go with a guide who's an armed guide, of course, because we are talking mm-hmm. about wildlife and mm-hmm. hike in Kruger National Park and see wildlife and that was super awesome i took my daughter and i took my friend rick who's a passionate photographer and Mm. we saw elephants and giraffe and rhinoceros and it was just a really super cool adventure 
Wow. And so then do you sleep in tents, I take it? Um, they have a, um, a campground that's ringed by a, a flimsy <laughs> fence. And uh, <laughs> there are these little A-frame huts with uh, platform oh. beds in them. Okay. Okay. Nice. Which nice. really cool. So, yeah. 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 And tell me, how long does it take to get to South Africa? Oh, forever and ever. That was the hardest part. <laughs> it's like a 17-hour flight. Uh-huh. Uh, wow. Yeah, direct from direct from Newark for us. But we had um, uh, three screaming children behind us the entire way. So it was no. it was definitely an endurance feat in itself. <laughs> You're like, what's the cutoff on this flight? Come on! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a challenge. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And so I, I trust that your daughter appreciated how what a magnificent treat that whole trip was. Yes. And I've been reminding her of that a lot right now because we're not doing anything at all in the spring break. And I said, yeah, but we had a really great spring break last year. <laughs> that ought to carry her through a few extra years, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You oh know, my it's goodness. like the hard, easy principle in running, right? You do a marathon and then you have to take a break. <laughs> It's international travel, and you got to take a break so that, that the right. bank account can recover. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. So, well, like I said, my kids they they didn't get to do uh, any sort of marathon, uh, but they still didn't get to really go anywhere on spring break. But uh, Jack and I are taking John to see Hamilton on Sunday night on Easter. Um, That's exciting. Yes, yes. So uh, Jack and I have both seen it separately, but this will be our first time seeing it together. And then John is the only one of our kids who has not seen it. And as he would be quick to tell you, he has also never seen a true musical that has appeared on Broadway. So he's very excited to do that. Um, so yes, yes. Um, are, and, tickets, uh, are tickets there as expensive as they are here? It's like $500 or more to go see it here in New York. Yeah, no, it's not. No. So um, I think I told the story on the podcast earlier that Jack uh, went and sat out or stood in line starting at like 530 in the morning to buy them in person. And so he paid uh, face value. I mean, face value is pretty high. I think it was maybe $175 a ticket, maybe. Okay. Um, that's and that's more reasonable. Yeah, it is more much more reasonable. And I realize that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for us. It's a big, big splurge. But it is less than $500 per ticket, at least. Yes, we, we have not seen it because when I went to look at ticket prices, I, I fell off my chair and it took a while to recover. Right, right. Um, yeah, that is exorbitant. So, but I mean, I'm just so excited. I mean, Jack still, I mean, he's been like a year on listening to it nonstop. I mean, when I get in a car that he's been driving... If I don't remember to turn down the volume on the car radio, it's like, dun, 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 dun. And I'm like, okay, I think we can lower that a little bit. Uh, so uh, I know he's super jazzed to see it. And, and I, I, I am as well, but I'm also almost eager to see it through their eyes and kind of turn and look at their faces as they see it. And because, I mean, no matter how much you listen to the soundtrack, the, for me, it's the dancing uh, that really just takes it all to another level. I mean, the the um, the kind of backup dancers is the wrong, wrong but kind of the extras, they uh, wear very fitted, uh, very light colored, almost white costumes. And so, and they're super, you know, buff dancers. And it's just amazing to watch them. It's almost like watching backup dancers at like a Katy Perry concert or something. So, um, I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah, that sounds exciting. It's like a super feat of athleticism. 
Uh, it is. Yeah. It is particularly to be able to produce that. I mean, you know, because the the main the stars of it themselves dance as well, and so I just can't, you know I can uh, don't ask me to sing like that when I'm running, you know, <laughs> let alone doing choreography. So, um, so I mean, I really uh, hats off to their you know their lung capacity. It's amazing. Um, yes, so good. Well, uh, and so you might say that they have, it's a feat of endurance, Hamilton is, um, which leads right into our guest. And I, I set myself up for that one, I admit it. Um, our guest today is Alex Hutchinson, well-known journalist who wrote the long-running column Sweat Science in Runner's World magazine. A former member of the Canadian national team, Alex is author of several books, including the just out Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Tish and I will talk to Alex after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome, Alex. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. So I've got to start with a, a non-running question. Uh, Tish and I were talking about a trip that she took to South Africa um, in the intro. And then in reading your new book, Endure, I was so envious of all the places that work has taken you. So what's your favorite spot on the globe that you visited? Oh man, that's that's a tough one. I was I was lucky enough. My wife and I lived in Australia for mm. four years while she was studying, mm-hmm. um, and that's when, that's when I went to South Africa. But we, I got to see a lot of places that were very different for me. And probably the like the coolest trip, like the most interesting place for me, was Papua New Guinea. Oh, um, there's a there's a, a path through the jungle there that's very sort of important to Australians because there was a really crucial uh, World War II battle there where they actually you know suffered a ton of losses and so no one but Australians goes and hikes it but so we we my wife and I went and hiked this trail through the jungle of Papua New Guinea and it was maybe the most uh kind of different and eye-opening and and a chance to uh, we had a couple of guides with us who sort of explained local culture to us who we got to know pretty well over the course of that week. So that, that's probably the, and, and I wrote about that for, for the New York times travel section. So mm-hmm. it was, it was a work related trip in some way, but it was actually just probably the most interesting trip I can think of in recent, in recent years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was pre-kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Since, since in, in the last four years, the most interesting trip I've taken has been to the grocery store to get more milk. basically. <laughs> My goodness. So, Alex, hi. This is Tish. Hey, Tish. How you doing? Good. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Um, so, Alex, from I, I sort of know your background from our working together at Runners World. Um, I know you were a Canadian national runner, but can for our listeners who don't know, can you tell us about your running history and and also where you are today with your running? Sure. Well, physically, where I am today is I'm in, I'm sitting in Toronto, uh, which is where I'm from, and uh. I, I've kind of gone through the full evolution as a runner, co- covering many bases. I started out in, in high school as a track runner. My, my best event was 1,500 meters, which is just, just short of a mile. And and I focused on that through university. And just towards the end of university, I made my first Canadian national team on the track. And over the next decade or so, I ran track and cross country for the most part um, and and made some national teams and but I've kind of evolved since then. I, I did a bunch of road racing. Actually, ran at the World Mountain Running Championships a few times. Uh, more, I, I moved up as far as the marathon, although that was a big stretch for me. And I've run some orienteering races and adventure races lately. So basically, you know, if it's if it's on feet and there's a stopwatch somewhere, then I'm I'm willing to give it a try. Um, these days, I have a one year old and a four year old at home, and and my wife works pretty long hours, so. Um, you, you know, as, uh, as a lot of, I'm sure a lot of mother runners find this too, Tra- training time gets a little constrained. So I get out most days, but sometimes it's for, 
you know, tw- often it's for 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and I'm, I've been racing, but I've been mostly doing, you know, five Ks, uh, five miles, that kind of distance. So you mentioned orienteering. I have a friend who grew up in Nova Scotia and I did an adventure race with her a million years ago and there was an orienteering section. She was exceptionally good at it. Like we just, it was a team event. We just cut so much time off our, our overall time because of it, because she said she did orienteering in junior high. Like, (laughs) so that's not like a Canadian blanket thing that everybody in Canada has to do orienteering. No, at least not, not in, not in big city Toronto, where basically you just have to know how to read the the subway map. It was the (laughs) the first, the first couple of uh, orienteering races I did, uh, you know, it's, it's a real eye opener because you think like, Hey, I can read a map and I can run that then you discover reading a map and running at the same time. It's not like twice as hard. It's like nine times as hard. And I, I did a couple of team races where we, we had like, Two, me and one other guy who were good runners and then we had the designated navigator who was going to help us out and it was, it was sort of shocking to see the 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 brutal blunders we made when we when we tried to make decisions for ourselves it's it's <laughs> definitely a, a a whole different set of like cognitive challenge uh-huh. it sure is yeah yeah so all right well speaking of cognitive things you have uh done uh, spent many many years doing research and and how has the research you know that you've looked at how has that changed the way you run if at all It's definitely changed the way I think about the challenge of running so I I I started out um uh, let's see I I I actually started out as as a as a physicist. Like I, I worked in science for a while, and it was in, only in my late twenties that I went back to become a to journalism school and did a master's in journalism and sort of switched over. And so I started writing about the sort of science of endurance sometime around two thousand six or so, so a little over a decade ago. And I was interested in it because of my experiences as a runner, but I had a lot of preconceptions about what I would find, what I would just learn about the limits of endurance. I wanted to know about VO2 max and lactate threshold and all these sorts of, uh, sort of almost mechanical, uh, aspects of the human body, uh, uh, the, with the idea that, you know, if you, if you learn enough about how your body works, you can figure out exactly what your, your limits are. And then, you know, whether you're running to your limits. Um, and, Pretty soon after that point, I started encountering research by people like Tim Noakes, who's a very notable South African researcher, arguing that th- that this sort of view of endurance as a sort of machine, as like we're, like we're a car that just goes until we run out of gas or something like that, that that's incomplete and it doesn't incorporate the brain. And that's kind of the journey that I've been on for the last ten years that that culminated in in, in the book I ended up ended up writing, which is increasing recognition of stuff that to me as a skeptical guy often sounds a little bit wishy-washy, but the role of the brain, realizing that limits that feel physical are often uh, dictated by the brain. And that means they're negotiable, which maybe means you, you, it's not all in your head, but maybe means you, you can, you can push through some of these limits that feel, feel physical. All right. Well, we just had to lose Tish because of technical issues, um, which I sort of compounded a little. So the sound, for, I apologize if the sound hasn't been good for a couple minutes on Tish's end. But um, so um, Alex is just going to be one-on-one conversation here. Um, so, um, all right. So being a running science geek steeped in this topic, you know, like what findings stick in your head or pop up in your head when you're out on a run? Yeah, I, I, the truth is, I try I try and have as little as possible popping up into my head when I'm out on a run, uh, at, 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 which which is in a way is one of the is one of the findings that that uh, I don't think, I, I, you know, I, I, sometimes getting out of your own way is really the the the, the most powerful thing you can do. Mm-hmm. But but I I've really come to believe that uh, 
you know, all of the things that I was kind of obsessed with as a, as a younger runner, all the, all the physiological stuff, uh, you know, lactate levels in my legs or whatever, you know, all, all of that matters, but not in the sense that you, you know, I don't slow down on a run because my legs are incapable of going any farther or because my, my heart rate is incapable or my heart is incapable of beating any faster. What really matters at the end is, is how my brain is interpreting all those signals. So mm-hmm. what really matters is how I perceive my effort. Mm-hmm. Um, how hard do I think I'm working? And and that sounds kind of, it almost sounds sort of philosophical, but, but it, it has some important kind of practical implications because it means that, for example, the, the things you tell yourself, the, the internal monologue in your head, that affects how your, your brain is interpreting the signals from the rest of your body. If you're mm-hmm. telling yourself, ah, oh, you know, this hurts so much, you're never going to be able to do this, mm-hmm. then you're you're inter- you're experiencing the 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 physical signals from the rest of your body in a different way than if you're telling yourself you've done this you've trained or you've trained for this you can do this keep pushing and so i've become a lot more open to the sports psychology which i found kind of wishy-washy when i was when i when i was 20 we had a sports psychologist that worked with our with our or you know, when i was in university we had a sports psychologist who taught us a bunch of things about you know self-talk and and negative thought stopping and things like that and we all just thought it was a a huge joke. We, we, we laughed and kind of sat through these sessions under protest. And 20 years later, if I, you know, if I had a time machine and I could go back and tell myself something, it wouldn't be like, Hey, Alex, try this supplement or, uh, you know, this amazing workout will, will radically transform your performance. It would be a become more aware of, of your internal monologue, try some things like motivational self-talk and, Mm -hmm. and see if you can use that to, to allow yourself to push a little closer to those physical limits that you're always worrying about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's definitely not as easy, just as not as simple as just saying like, oh, okay, well, I'll just say, oh, embrace the the challenge and, and, you know, this feels good. Like, you know, that you can't just put lipstick on a pig, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and <laughs> it's almost, I feel a little bad dispensing this sort of advice because it's like, I, I'm still at, you know, step one of the journey of a thousand miles trying to, trying to travel this road. And so like last year I had a chance of, to, uh, I spent like six months covering Nike's breaking two project, mm-hmm. which was this, this marathon where they tried to, you know, spend, uh, as much money as needed to, to, to optimize every detail of a marathon to try and run a two hour marathon. And Elliot Kipchoge, who's the marathon cha- uh, Olympic champion from Kenya, mm-hmm. he, uh, he ended up running two hours, zero minutes and 25 seconds. And so mm-hmm. I spent like six months writing about all this, uh, technology and, and training and all these details. And it's only as time has passed, the, my perspective is shifting a little bit. And what I remember most about it is Kipchoge's mindset and how he, you know, sort of systematically went about trying to enhance his self-belief. He would say, you know, I asked him like, how are you going to change your training to be run a, to be able to run a two hour marathon? And he said, oh, my training's not going to change. I, uh, my mind is going to be different. And that sounded silly to me initially, but I, I now kind of, I'm starting to appreciate that this was part of a deliberate process on his part of, of trying to create that belief in his mind. And so it's easy for me to say, oh, I, you know, you, sh- you have to believe in yourself and you have to, uh, you know, reframe pain so that it's not a panic signal. It's a, mm-hmm. it's just information, but mm-hmm. you can't, I can't just roll out of bed tomorrow and, and change the internal monologue in my head. It's a process where you have to, first of all, you have to become aware of what it is you say to yourself and you have to think carefully about those things, those, th- those thoughts that are going through your head. Cause if you're saying to yourself, come on, you're, you know, you're worthless, you can't do this. That's, that's not productive. And that's not, that that's not true. But if you're saying to yourself, oh, you're going to fade in the second half of the race because you haven't done any long runs, 
Well, maybe that is true. Maybe, and maybe it's not a psychological problem. Maybe you need to do your long runs next time. <laughs> but, but, but I think we, we do have, we often have self-destructive or, or self-limiting internal monologue. And you can't just necessarily flick a switch and change that. You have to sort of become aware of it. You have to then think of alternatives that resonate with you. You can't mm-hmm. say to yourself, I'm going to beat Elliot Kipchoge today because you're not. <laughs> you have to you have to say something that's true. Like you've, I've done the work. I've, I've, I've prepared for this. I can push through this. And you have to find what works for you because everyone's different. Everything's sa- to what, what, what's a great sort of thing to say for one person might sound hopelessly cheesy and, and thus not sort of convincing to someone else. And then you have mm-hmm. to practice it until it becomes second nature. So I'm I'm by no means speaking from the top of the mountain here. I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm at the bottom of the mountain with a map and I'm like, oh, I think I do see the, where the direction of the summit. So hopefully we can at least be moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and those things, I, I speak from personal experience when I say that what you tell yourself changes over time. I mean, what maybe worked, you know, in the big Sur marathon isn't going to work at all for me. It might fall flat you know, when I'm running Boston or running Twin Cities or something like that. That Yeah, that's a great point. And and even within a race, mm-hmm. what you want to be telling yourself at ten miles is not the same as what you need to be telling yourself at twenty miles. But there was there was one really neat study uh by a guy named Stephen Chung where he 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 tried one of these motivational self talk interventions where you you basically teach some people to to replace the negative uh, self talk with positive self talk he did it specifically in in heat so he was he's he was having cyclists uh, do t- t- exercise tests in a heat chamber and so it was self talk that was specifically tailored to get rid of, getting rid of the thoughts like uh, I'm boiling. This is way too hot, uh, and 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 so in that way, he was able to get people to you know, and the, the the cyclists who did self talk, sure they performed better. They were also able to push, keep pushing until their core temperature was about half a degree higher by the mm. end. So they were able to dig deeper into that physiological reserve, specifically by fighting against the the feeling that they were too hot. Mm. Um, without and, and the, the interesting thing is their perception of effort didn't change. So they were they were it, they weren't. They didn't feel like they were trying any harder, but by changing the language in their head, they they were able to work harder without it feeling harder. They changed the relationship between what their body was doing and what their mind was perceiving. It's interesting you bring up the topic of heat because I read chapter eight of your book with particular interest. Um, and I'll remind you that that's the one uh, titled Heat. And um, I'm convinced that I am a, a, the heat miser because I just bring hot weather to so many marathons I run. Like if you, folks, if you hear that I'm going to run a marathon, like <laughs> run the other way. Um, but um, I mean, is there something unique about heat because it does have such a measurable, you know, like an effect that almost, you know, a fifth grade science kid could understand, you know, like, I don't know, is there something a little different about heat and how we talk to in the face of that? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing to say is that, and and, and not to state the obvious, but heat is real. Like, so <laughs> a, 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 a lot of time, a lot of the sort of is in my book. A lot of what I try and talk about is what's surprising and unexpected. And so, what I don't want to leave the impression is with is that all all the other stuff is not is not real. So, um, what one thing that's kind of unique about heat is that that's one area in general our brains are very good at kind of protecting us 
like I, if I if I stepped outside right now and just started running as hard as I could with the goal of running myself unconscious, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to. Like there's mm-hmm. there's all these systems that kick in that make me too tired essentially to to really do myself serious damage. Hmm. And and that's that's true in a wide variety of contexts. It's really hard to push yourself to a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Heat mm-hmm. is one area where it's it's still most of us can't do do ourselves harm, but there's more. Uh, there's a little more margin for error there with heat, or a little less margin for error in that sometimes we we miscalculate, and you, and it, that's why in hot weather marathons you do see a lot more people ending up in the medical tent mm-hmm. because we're not quite as good at at judging that that kind of razor's edge of how how far we should push in heat. Mm-hmm. So so heat is heat can be super dangerous, and you have to absolutely respect uh, the the guidelines. If it's a hot day, you know, adjust your pace mm-hmm. and and stay hydrated, all that stuff. Having said all that, um, one of the one of the studies that I found really really uh, sort of telling was a study where they again they put people in a heat chamber, mm-hmm. but this time they, they rigged the thermometers so that they oh. they read fa- falsely low temperatures, both the room thermometer and the the core thermometers, which were stuck stuck up the uh, mm-hmm. the rear orifice of the of the cyclists, <laughs> and uh, you know, the the things people will do for science, right? Like, but but what was fascinating is that. You know, when when the when the temperature was sort of high eighties, if the if the cyclists thought that it was low eighties or high seventies, then their performance was not slowed down as much. So heat was certainly real, but part of how we respond to heat is because of our expectation. And mm-hmm. when you think about that, think about the all these hot weather races that you've run. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't just run at your usual pace until it, it hits you like a ton, at least I hope you don't usually no, no. just, just no, 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 run your pace <laughs> until it hits you like a ton of bricks at, at 16 miles. Uh-huh. You, you're slower right from the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that happens almost unconsciously, even if you're not aware of it. You, like you, you, your body is kind of keeping tabs on, on how hot you, hot you are. And that's a sign again that, uh, you know, your brain is kind of, is making some fairly subtle and sophisticated calculations to get you to the finish line. It's not perfect. It can make mistakes, but it's, it's definitely, uh, and so, and so because it, your brain is the one making these calculations, again, this means that you're able to, to maybe make some subtle adjustments, not dismiss the effect of heat, but if you're, if you're able to not panic about the heat, if you're able to tell yourself something positive about the heat, that you've prepared for it. For example, let's say you've done a few weeks of hot weather training or of, of hot baths after your runs or one of these techniques that are that can work to help prepare you for heat. Then you can tell yourself, I'm ready for this. I, 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 I knew this was going to happen because it always happens to me. So I'm ready for a hot weather race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just told myself, oh yeah, the, not my first marathon where it's gotten super hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You've been through it before. That's yeah. one of the most powerful ways of telling yourself, I know I can do this because I've done this the last 17 marathons that I've run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, you, um, when you said about how the, um, the cyclists in the heat chambers that, um, they didn't know the temperature and how that can affect them. I, um, find that, re- um, true on the opposite end of the weather spectrum that uh, I'll meet up with my running partner, Molly, and, and she'll be like dressed more warmly than I am. And, and I'll be like, wow, you know, wow, a, a coat and a long sleeve shirt or, you know, an, and a vest or whatever. She's like, well, it's 37. And I was like, oh yeah, I just don't look at the temperature. And like, I don't know. I Some, just, sometimes so, ignorance really is bliss. It <laughs> is. It is. And that, you know, or that, that, you know, later on I'll be like, oh my gosh, it was, it was 20 when I was running this morning. It didn't feel that cold. And so, 
I don't know. I, I, I definitely live in, live in a bubble sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's a great, a great way to do it. And it works really well until it doesn't. So you, you don't want to go out dressed for 40 when it's minus, when it's minus 20. Right. 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 But, right. but, but, but w- w- within a reasonable range, I think, yeah, uh, often our expectation of how it's going to feel is worse than it actually, it actually mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that your language is so, I'm just, the way you f- even phrase things, I can tell that you that you spend a lot. I can imagine that your self talk is very well fine tuned. That you are able to. Um, I, I keep writing down phrases that you say, and I'm like, wow, that was a really tactful, uh, you know, precise, wonderful way of saying what you meant. <laughs> so. Well, I, well, thank you. But I'll, I'll I'll quote. I think it was Mike Tyson who said, "Everyone has a, a plan until they're punched in the face." So <laughs> I. I, I uh, I, I I have all these great ideas about how I should behave under the great stress, but of course, once you once you're in a race, uh-huh. often uh, of, uh, often all these all these subtle and great thoughts kind of fade away, and all you can think is get me out of here. <laughs> right. So uh, right. the theory is the first part. Now I just need to learn to put it into practice. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, do you have any advice that you can share for people putting these tactics that they practice into? into, you know, into effect when they are come race day or, you know, when the hammer's down. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the number one thing is, is, I mean, not to state the obvious, but it's practice makes perfect. Um, it's, it's really, really hard to change your internal monologue through a sheer act of will or just by deciding Mm -hmm. to do it. Uh, Mm -hmm. these are, these are some pretty deeply worn grooves in your mind. Mm -hmm. And so you really need to get out there and training and, and ideally, in some of your hard training sessions, where you, you, you know you're not necessarily going to simulate what a race feels like, but where you're going to have some sort of shadow effect or some sort of equivalent of being really tired and wanting to stop or wanting to slow down, and you, you need to try those things out and see how they make you feel. And so, one of the, one of the things that I suggest is if you're keeping a training log, don't just keep track of how fast you went or how far you went keep track in some way of how you felt. Um, and, you know, and I used to do that just with a qualitative, like, uh, you know, very felt good, felt bad, felt stale, felt very good. You know, it's just, just something, but an easy, you know, maybe even a simpler and a, a more helpful way is on a scale of one to 10, how did that run today feel? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can look for some patterns and you can, and, and if you start trying to test out different self-talk approaches, you can look and see, well, did that one just make me distracted and angry or, mm-hmm. or did that one make the run feel a little better? And you know, this is an inexact science, right? Cause you, it's, it's subjective, but I think people sometimes underestimate how, uh, how, how sensitive these subjective feelings are. Cause if going back to what, one of the things we were talking about earlier, if the ultimate sort of decider in terms of whether you can go faster or not is your perception of effort, then that act of saying, well, that felt like a seven out of 10 today. Yesterday, it felt like an 8 out of 10 or a 5 out of 10 or whatever. That number has real meaning. It's not just a sort of uh, uh, sort of a fudge factor um, to, that, that, that's not as accurate as, as your heart rate or your, you know, your running power or whatever else you're tracking. It's the other way around. All those things that your, your, your watch or your heart rate monitor can measure, they're just imperfect estimates of your internal sense of how you feel. Cause that's what matters. What matters is, did that feel like a seven out of 10 or a six out of 10? Mm-hmm. So, so putting that in your log is, is a good way of, of sort of tracking and figuring out 
how how your training's going in general and as you start to try and experiment with different forms of self-talk well let's see did if i try this plan this kind of self-talk how did my tempo run feel today mm-hmm. oh wait last week it was eight out of ten this week it's seven out of ten maybe that has some significance mm-hmm. and i also think that there is some value in recording it and and i think you know you can't argue with with paper and and pen because I don't know. I sometimes think like, oh, I'll totally remember that. Like, you know, even if I just like, if it's something that I see on my run, oh, I'll totally remember where that is. And then you come back and like, oh yeah, I have no memory. So that, so that, um, you know, I think I, I want to stress the importance of, of jotting it down in some way and, and, or, you know, it could even be adding it, typing it in in Strava or, or daily mile or wherever you log your miles or whatever. Yeah, I mean, pretty much every every online resource now has a place where you can add your comments. I mean, I I I have stacks and stacks of paper logs too. I'm sort of fond of those, um, and yeah, it's you know, it's not. I I don't. I wouldn't say that it's like every runner has to have a log. It depends on your, your where you are in your running. And actually, right now, I I don't keep a log because I, I'm a pretty obsessive personality, right? And so uh-huh. there's times when it's probably better for me to just say, okay, look, it doesn't matter if I run 39 minutes or 40 minutes. I don't need to run around the block to get to an even number because I'm not mm-hmm. writing it down anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there, there's, there's kind of case, different cases for different for uses. But I think definitely if you're preparing for a race, uh, like you said, recording it, um, it's amazing the patterns you can start to see if you mm-hmm. flip through your training that, that, that aren't obvious to you if you don't have it down, you know, written or recorded in some way that you realize, man, every time I do that long tempo run, I get sick or I have a terrible workout a couple of days later. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you, you may not make that connection until you see it on, you know, four weeks in a row in your log. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then do you have any advice on when to go back and look those things over? I mean, is there a certain type of mindset that you should, you know, or can you just like, if you're flying to your race, can you just flip through it on the plane or, you know? Yeah, I mean, in in a sense, I, I think that the it's it's better to be looking at it, you know, during the season to mm-hmm. try and get a sense of well, there's well, there's still a chance to change something. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think f- looking through it on the way to the race can be a double edged sword because mm-hmm. it's too late to change anything, and if you're like, man, I I missed three days there, and I didn't do a long <laughs> run there, and boy, that mm-hmm. workout was a real dud. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it depends. If you had a great training block, then by all means, like <laughs> pin it up on your wall and read it, read it the night before the race. Right. But, but I, I think hopefully in the last few days before the race, you kind of want to be putting, you kind of want to be able to close the book and say, you know, whether it's three or four days before the race, say, all right, I've done the work and I don't need to stress about the workouts anymore. Now I just mm-hmm. need to, well, first of all, think about the race, but also relax and just let my mind Um, you know, one of the things that I, one of the sort of insights that came out of the book for me, there's a bunch of research on the, the, the the links between mental fatigue and performance. And this Mm -hmm. grows out of what I was saying before about perception of effort Mm -hmm. is, is really what matters. And they've, you know, we, I certainly know if I spend a day sitting at the computer, um, and if I, let's say I'm on deadline working on an article and the, and the article's due at five o'clock and I get it in at four 59, if I go and try and do a run with some friends at five 15, um, even though I've had the least physically challenging day imaginable, I haven't gotten up out of my chair, uh, that run is going to be crap. Uh, and it, this is sort of something intuitively, I think we all understand, but there's been some some great research sort of quantifying this and saying, hey, look, we can put someone in front of the computer for just 90 minutes and have them do a fairly simple task where, you know, let's say there's letters flashing on a screen and they have to press a button, but it just requires focus. And using that focus up makes you worse 
at uh, at at maintaining focus in your run. Your perform your endurance goes down, and so I've I've uh, I started to think in terms of the idea of a mental taper. That sure before a marathon you you uh, you're going to reduce your training leading up to it, your physical training. But you also need to make sure your mind is fresh. And so I think one one of the mistakes that I I used to make I think was you, you finally let's say you've been training a bunch a few days before a race you're dramatically scaling back your training and you're like wow I've got all this time I can do my taxes and I can you know <laughs> do all this other stuff. It's like nah you know if there's if you've spent three months preparing for a race now's the time to to read a good book watch you know watch a a, a mindless TV show uh, just relax give make sure that. Your, your your mind is as fresh as your body when you get to the start. So that was a bit of a digression, but it was just, no. um, uh, I think it was an, an, an interesting thing that I think is, is actually maybe underappreciated by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So then to that effect, then, then I hear you talking about, you know, so you turn in that story at 4.59 and then go running 16 minutes later or whatever. It, it, is that an argument for exercising in the morning so that, you, you know, your mind's been as fully charged as it's going to be maybe for the day? That's that's a great question, and I think the answer is not necessarily. Um, so, if your goal is to nail that workout, to run that workout as fast as possible, then yeah, that's an argument for um, getting it out of the way before a stressful workday. But in reality, most of our workouts, the goal isn't to win the workout, right? It's to it's to prepare for the race. And you could almost make an argument, and, and there's a scientist in Britain, a guy named Samuel Marcora, who makes this argument that actually doing the workout after work. It's sort of like the mental equivalent of wearing a weighted vest. Mm-hmm. You're 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 making the workout a little bit harder for yourself, and so in doing so, you're working on your mental endurance. Now, you don't want to do all your workouts that way because you'll probably be a little slower and you won't get the physical benefits. But if you do some of your workouts that that way, then that's that you can think of that as a positive. Which to me is kind of a it's it's a refreshing message uh, because in reality, uh, you know. 99.9% of us in the in the real world are going to have to do some workouts sometimes when we're feeling uh, mentally tired. So I think, I mean, the the, the main advice, I, in terms of the, the bigger question of when should you do your workouts, my my number one answer is you should do them whenever it's convenient for you and whenever mm-hmm. you enjoy them because you'll, like the, the, the differences we're talking about in what you get out of a morning, say, versus an afternoon workout are totally marginal compared to the differences if you end up starting to miss workouts or whatever because you're, mm-hmm. uh, you put, you know, because you hate getting up at 5 a.m. or whatever to try and get a workout in, which mm-hmm. is certainly understandable. So I think these differences are subtle, but on those in those cases when you're working out in in a situation that doesn't feel optimal to you, um, there's there's a silver lining or there's a benefit. You're you're maybe you're not working your lactate threshold to the same degree, but you're working your mental endurance. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'd like to say being a mother runner is is pretty much makes every workout being like wearing a weighted vest Uh, you you don't have to be sitting at a desk it could just be like okay i just spent two hours with my tantrumy twins you know like get me out of here and i'm already worn into the ground before i my first you know foot hits the ground um so yeah totally there's all these sophisticated like i you know i've written about some of the research where they use these fancy computer tasks to inflict mental fatigue uh and and i used to get emails from people saying you know where can i get these uh (laughs) these computer tasks to inflict mental fatigue and i'm like man i've got plenty of mental fatigue i'm I'm, i'll mail you some because uh come over and take care of my kid for an hour (laughs) exactly you do it for 10 minutes and i guarantee you'll be you, you won't even be able to walk out the door right right um 
So, hey, um, diverging topics. I want to get topical for a moment. Um, and you you might not have an answer for this, but um, I was intrigued that there were no finishers in this year's notoriously difficult Barkley Marathons, which you t- you touch on um, that that race um, in your book a few times. Um, any insight into what the finishers who compete in that um, complete that five loop course have to summon to continue, you know, running over forty hours. <laughs> Yeah, you know, this is this is a, that's an amazing amazing race. And I think just on a general point, I think it's interesting how this race that no one had heard of until maybe 5 or 6 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was totally obscure, but it's really captured people's imaginations. And I think what it goes back to is it, it's pretty cool to have uncertainty in an event to or, or in a task to to not and I think in in one form or another this is kind of what a lot of us are searching for when we take on challenges like running a marathon or whatever the case may be that there's there's not no real satisfaction or you know less satisfaction in doing something that you always know you can do or that you already know you can like it's like if you know can i walk to the store and get milk yes i know i can can i run a 5k well i've been running long enough that i know i can run a 5k so you end up looking for something where it's like where there's a chance of failure and i think you know, and, and whether it's a chance of failure at hitting the time we're going for, or covering the distance, or being able to complete the training, I think that's a that's an essential part of the allure and of of a lot of endurance activities and a lot of you know sports and and races and things like that. And so, Barkley, the Barkley Marathons kind of takes that little sliver of what's yeah, what I think is an essential part of of wondering, can I do this? And it makes it into the, it, it blows it up into a gargantuan <laughs> size where it's like, you know what? Nobody may finish this, right? Uh, and and if 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 nobody does, that's all. That's like, that's that's not a problem. That's a kind of celebration of of like the fact that when someone does finish it, man, it's it's meaningful. It's mm-hmm. it's true. It's truly truly meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, in terms of what the specific runners go through or what they actually go through in this race, I mean. That the, the race director is a, a Laz is a, a truly you know he's a, a cruel genius in the, <laughs> the, the the ways he comes up to torment them you know and changing the directions and make you know having not even they don't even know when the race is going to start they're just there camping and any time in that twelve hour period they might hear the conch and then mm-hmm. they know man it's the race starts in one hour so how do you do your pre race nutrition when you have a twelve hour right. window during mm-hmm. which the race will start mm-hmm. um, so the, the people who succeed they have to have you know, it's definitely not just about how fast can, can they run. They have to have a very specific mental makeup that can that can tolerate uncertainty and tolerate the inevitable times when they're going to take a wrong turn on the course, mm-hmm. uh, when they're going to realize that they've just wasted you know half an hour by going the wrong direction, or when they've fallen, slipped down a, a muddy gully and and scraped themselves. Mm-hmm. And and that's you know that's a very different set of skills than than it takes to you know go on a track and run 5,000 meters or something like that. It's, it's, uh, um, it's, so I come from that track background and, and I, I, I find this kind of thing very challenging when there's, when things are not going according to plan or when there's mm-hmm. unexpected surprises. And so I have a huge amount of respect for those guys who can, those, those men and women who've, who've, uh, who've, uh, who've, if not finished, at least have done very well in that course have made it past. Cause I think it's five loops is completing. Mm-hmm. And this year, no one made it past the third loop. I don't think. So mm-hmm. it's it's like even if you complete a loop or two in that uh, within the, the allocated time period, that's a that's a real victory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
See, but again, you're talking about those unexpected things. And, and all I keep thinking is that's the life of a mother runner. And, you know, as a, as a father runner, you know that, 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 you know, with kids, life, you know, your day is just set up. You can think you've got your day totally planned out and it's going to, you're going to get curveballs thrown at you left and right. So is there, you know, okay, so people can be working on their, um, you know, their mental strategy while they're out there on a run, but are there things that they can be doing in their everyday life that also can set them up for greater success when they're trying athletic endeavors? Yeah, for sure. And and I think uh, I sort of, I almost feel bad saying this because I feel it's like, it's such a buzzword, but cultivating a sense of mindfulness, I think is, is really, uh, it gets at the heart of being able to handle these curveballs in life as a parent, but also in, in sports. There have been some, some really fascinating research at, at UC San Diego where they, they started out by looking at like elite warfighters, people like Navy SEALs, and then they, they expanded it to look at athletes like uh, multi-day adventure racers. And it was this, it was this weird protocol where they, you're, they're scanning their brains while they're in a, so they're in this like big magnet tube, which is a little claustrophobic as it is. And and then they're doing these cognitive tasks. So they have to focus on, on, you know, pressing the right buttons for, um, based on a computer screen. Mm-hmm. And then they're also breathing through this special mask, which every once in a while, the flow of oxygen is restricted. So it feels oh. like they're breathing through a straw. So they're in this <laughs> tube being held still. So their brain doesn't move doing a task. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, for the cherry on top, we're going to make it really hard for you to breathe. I, I'm going and, to have a panic attack just listening to you talk about it. <laughs> it to- totally, totally. And w- what was fascinating? So the 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 the, or- the ordinary people who went through this, like it sucked, and and some of them, had, you know, panicked and had to be taken out of the brain scanner. Uh-huh. The, the elite performers, like the the adventure racers, what was interesting is not only did they handle it fine, they actually their performance on the cognitive tasks actually got better during the breathing restriction, like they went into huh. this m- mode of like, okay, we're under stress, focus, eliminate all distractions. Like they, their, their performance went up instead of down. And so that, so this was an interesting observation to start. And so they said, well, how can we, how can we call, and, and they found some, some sort of uh, specific activities of brain activation. So that in terms of the way people monitored their surroundings, they were always, uh, aware of of how they were feeling in the surroundings, but they weren't overreacting to stimulus. So they wanted to say, okay, this is obviously a good thing to have. How do we help other people have this sort of approach to be able to handle stressful situations? Mm-hmm. And they 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 thought of a lot of different possibilities, but what they ended up trying was uh, an eight-week mindfulness course. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what they found is that after an if the, in, even in you know just ordinary people, after eight weeks of mindfulness training, their brain patterns looked a lot more like the elite performers. They'd learned to become aware of the surroundings without panicking when something went wrong. So when the when the breath suddenly got restricted, um, they were able to just sort of, okay, I'm I'm aware of this. I'm not panicking. I'm just aware that I have to breathe more slowly. And so I think of that like last night, my you know my my uh, my one year old managed to pull her sleep sack off somehow um, at two a.m. and so. And I, I, I did a bunch of traveling last week. I'm, I'm in huge sleep debt. I, I was really counting on a good night of sleep last night. And so it's like, you know, the key for me, I had to get up and, and sort of help, help figure out the broken zipper in the dark and get her back to, back to sleep and then go back to my room and not let this throw off my whole night, you know, mm-hmm. not be ruminating about it and just mm-hmm. say, okay, that's okay. It's, you know, I didn't want to wake up at 2am, but I did. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, 
So I feel like, and again, this this is like this is me from the bottom of the mountain, not the top of the mountain. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, but 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 I'm trying to be to cultivate more of that sort of mindful awareness approach where uh, you kind of remove the emotional response or over response to some of these things that are going wrong, and just understand that it's it's just the nature of the beast. And and then also look at it as a silver lining in the sense that yeah I can I can I can use this fatigue as a as a as, a, as my as my, an extra training stimulus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See you saying remove the emotional over response like that is just like oh that's so brilliant like and when you and that even the phraseology of that I don't know if that's a word but that that it 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 shows that you know how you can take a situation assess it and turn it into something. You know, that, that sounds so less ominous, so less jarring than just being like, oh yeah, the shit hit the fan. And then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it, of, of course, uh, you know, let me just really triply emphasize that, uh, sort of understanding that that's what you want to do doesn't make it necessarily easy to do. And I'm, I still like, there's, there's lots of times when I'm just sort of working myself up into a lather and, and, you know, my wife will be like, Alex, like, it's okay. Like, yes, she threw her plate of greasy salmon across the room and it's all over it, but like, it's okay. Like half an hour from now, it'll all be, this was last night, by the way, but anyway, um, you know, you know, it's like the, the, the problem is, is that you need to clean it up, mm-hmm. but the problem isn't that, you know, that that's all it is. It's not like, it doesn't signify that she's going to be a juvenile delinquent or mm-hmm. that you're going to miss all your deadlines for the next month or whatever. It's mm-hmm. just like, keep it in context. Don't, don't get mad about it. Just deal with what, uh, with what you have to deal with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think parenting and getting older helps with that as well. That I, I just kind of feel like things that seem like really big deal in your twenties. Now I'm, I'm in my early fifties and it's just like, I mean, like my approach to traffic has changed so much. And so, um, like, I'm just like, yep. Okay. There's a whole bunch of cars in front of me. Uh, this is where I am right now. Like I'll eventually get there. And do any of the studies that um, you've looked at show that there's kind of like a age sweet spot that like you have enough life experience and time to have worked on things and then also, but before like mental deterioration that comes with age is said. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mention that. No. Uh, it's, yeah, Wait, it, I, might, I forget. What was my question? Wait. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like, so I, I haven't seen like specific studies on the, the sweet spot, but I've certainly, it's something people are discussing a lot. And especially in the context of you look at some of the athletes who are now performing at an extremely high level, uh, you know, into their late thirties and forties, uh, I mean, even Elliot Kipchoge, who's this uh, the Olympic marathon champion, he's in his mid thirties, which is not when you expect people to be running two hour marathons. And some of the speculation is, it's like the the if you know if you look at the physiology of it, then they're they've a lot of the physiological stuff has probably peaked by the time you hit thirty. And you know, it may not be declining, but it's it's kind of stagnating or maybe receding a little bit. But the reason some of these athletes are able to keep getting better is that they've accumulated this amazing mental outlook, this wisdom, uh, this ability to deal with adversity. And so they're kind of they're continuing to progress on the mental front rather than, you know, e- even if their skills, their physical skills are are starting to sort of inch back. And, I, you know, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's certainly some truth to that. And I, it's, it's hard to yeah, it's obviously hard to know, like the, the traffic example is such a. A, a, a great example because that's another classic example of one of those situations where my wife will be like, "Alex, like getting <laughs> mad about it isn't going to change anything." Yeah. Um, 
And believe me, I, I give her advice too. It's like oh, it's God. always easier to see the problem in, in the other person, right? Like no, you no, can no, see no, where no, the no, other no. person. Don't, is. No, no, we, we, you know, we're going to put your wife on a pedestal and we're going to keep her there. So don't knock <laughs> yeah, her off. Well, She's she, part she way up the be, mountain already. You know, like she, follow her she, lead. She, she deserves to be on a pedestal, but yeah, it's it's just like it's it, sometimes it takes someone else to to point out to you uh, yeah. that uh, what you're doing wrong. And I I do feel like I have evolved as a person and yeah it's like if i could if i could download one piece of wisdom to my daughters you know it'd be like yeah just when things go wrong just roll with it it's not Mm -hmm. it's like don't don't panic but it's i I don't know i think maybe you have to you have to kind of go through the the crucible a little bit and and experience it for yourself to be able Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. to acquire that knowledge well so then that brings to mind um if people run with a running partner um is there something that, so maybe you're not able to internally focus as much because, you know, there's someone who's conversing with you and, and, but is there something that if you're running with people that, that you can get that type of feedback, you know, or, or advice that, that can work toward, you know, honing your mental endurance? Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say on that note is, is that not every run should be an opportunity to hone your mental endurance. Like mm-hmm. sometimes it's, sometimes it's just fun, right? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> uh, otherwise what are we doing? And so, um, you know, if I have a chance to, to run with a friend, um, that just for a social run on a, on a, on an easy day, then I'm, I'm not worried about any of this stuff. I'm just out there having a good time and, mm-hmm. and enjoying the chance to chat. Mm-hmm. The, the, I, I'm more thinking about these sort of limit pushing kinds of things on the hard days, which, you know, mm-hmm. might be too, to, or at most three days a week. Um, but, and actually, you know, if I, if I can arrange to, to do those hard workouts with a friend, then that's great. And, uh, you know, during the heart, you know, and I, we might chat during the recovery jog and during the warm up and during the warm mm-hmm. down, and maybe during the first like six steps of a hard work of, of, a, of a hard interval. But once the, once the going gets serious in one of those workouts, uh, I, I'm in my own place mm-hmm. uh, ment- mentally. Uh, if only because I'm breathing too hard to be able to, to talk anyway. <laughs> uh-huh. And so in that sense, like having another person there is, uh, is an amazing help for a hard workout. It just it gives you someone to chase or mm-hmm. someone to be chased by. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's there's some amazing research showing how our performances enhance, how our brain chemistry changes when we're performing a hard task with someone else, when we're oh. in pursuit of a shared goal compared to doing exactly the same physical task on your own. It's a mm. totally different uh, level of sort of brain chemistry and pain tolerance. So it's, hmm. it's great to be with another person, but it, I, ultimately when you're, when you're running, when you're doing the hard part of the workout, uh, mentally that other person is there and is helping you. But I think your thought, pro- you're going to be alone with your own thoughts and that's the time to work on that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm not going to keep you much longer. Um, but, um, so from all your investigative journalism, um, for your book endure, um, whose story stands out the most in your mind as typifying endurance? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. It's like the, so let me start by saying, I I had to think carefully about what I meant by endurance and Mm -hmm. how I defined endurance. And, the, the definition I ended up going with, which was from one of the researchers, was that it's the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, I think, is a really general definition, right? It, it applies in, uh, you know, in, in running, but also in, <laughs> in, in many aspects of life, including, obviously, as we've talked about, parenting. Uh, so, you know, so whose story typifies that struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop? Um, 
one of the stories that really resonated with me is there's a, there was a woman named Rhiannon Hull, mm-hmm. who was uh, she was a collegiate runner at at the University of Oregon actually, but then ended up moving to Costa Rica, and uh, uh, you know it's actually I, I hate to say this because it's a kind of sad, well it is a sad story, but sh- she and her son I think he was about six years old or something like that were caught in a riptide in uh, in Costa Rica and ended up getting pulled out to sea, mm. and were out there for something like half an hour with her treading water and and supporting her son and eventually a couple of uh surfers spotted her and paddled out to try and get to her and they they basically got to her at the very last possible moment and, and her the, you know the last thing she was able she'd been go, going under and coming back up but the last thing she was able to do was kind of hurl her son onto this surfboard before dipping under for the last time and she didn't come back up mm-hmm. so uh, I, I i feel like a, a jerk for ending with a, a sad story but it's also i think a happy story in the sense that against all odds her son survived and was saved because she was able to absolutely push i think that, that's the sort of example that that comes to mind as like in what in what situation did someone get everything possible out of themselves and mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. probably seeing that the the surfers were coming mm-hmm. probably enabled her to dip into reserves that uh that you know fortunately for most of us we will Ne- mm-hmm. most of us will never ever ever be able to to p- penetrate that deep into our reserves mm-hmm. and so uh you know that's uh I, it says something again about the role of the brain brain that if, because she had something to push for something so important to her she was able to to push to her absolute maximum well, thank you for and choosing a story about a mother that was um thank you um so alex it's been fascinating talking with you thank you so much well, thanks, Sarah. It's, it's been a really fun conversation, really interesting. Great. Take care. You too. Oh, man. If I could be half as eloquent as Alex Hutchinson, I would be a happy, happy writer. Um, so, all right. Well, um, we are doing loads of Instagram giveaways here at Another Mother Runner. Uh, last week, it was entries to exciting races around the U.S., and we have a lot of spring running gear giveaways in the coming weeks so to be sure you catch them follow us on instagram we are at the mother runner and as long as we're talking social media um if you recall we have a um, father runner on for the episode right before father's day last year it was um peter sagel of wait wait don't tell me and so um i want to go for a tv star moving from radio to tv this year i want to get um uh, Chip Gaines of Fixer Upper to be our Father's Day guest this year. Uh, Chip is training for his first marathon. I know he is um, raising money for charity. He seems very invested in both the cause and the miles. So, hey, everybody, let's tweet um, at Chip Gaines. That's G-A-I-N-E-S. And use the hashtag Honorary Mother Runner. And because that was how we got Peter Sagal last year was we just kind of wore him down on Twitter. So work with me on this one. Again, it's at Chip Gaines, honorary mo- hashtag honorary mother runner. And I will um, try to um, figure out how to get in touch with them, um, you know, maybe via email or something. And hopefully we can convince them to be on. Our podcast today was produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward from Sounds Like Pictures. Many happy miles. Happy miles.